Welcome to the Mom Village Podcast. We are three multicultural moms sharing our journey through motherhood with the Christ Center Foundation. For information and resources, visit us at our church's website at gofamilychurch.org. Or you can also email us at themomvillage at gofamilychurch.org. And please go over and follow us on Instagram at themomvillagefc. We're glad that you're here and welcome to our village. Hello, mom, and welcome to the Mom Village. We are here again with you ladies, and we're going to talk about adolescents' mental health. And I'm here with my ladies. I'm your host, Jesus Maria Ramos, and I have my other host here, the beautiful Kira Kelly. Good morning, ladies. And of course, the sweet and gorgeous Kristen Scroggins. Good morning, ladies. And we are so excited about this podcast because we know there's a lot of this topic out there, sometimes good and sometimes not so good. So we brought awesome people with us and awesome guests with us to talk about this. So Kristen, what do you tell us who's with us? Ladies, we're so excited about the guests that we have this morning. Sarah Rayner is joining us today, and she is one of all of our dear yeah. friends. Her husband actually served on staff here with our husbands at Family Church, and we just adore them both. And we're so sad when they moved away, but we have kept in contact. And so, Sarah, welcome. Welcome. Hey, Sarah. And Sarah, we are so excited. Yay. We're so glad you're here. And Sarah, just tell our ladies a little bit about you and Art and the family that God has blessed you with. So my name, as you said, is Sarah. And my husband and I, oh goodness, we've been together about 17 years now. And like what you said, Christian, he used to be on staff there as one of the pastors at Family Church. He's now one of the vice presidents here at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest. And we have three kids together, three boys, ages four, seven, and 10. And prior to moving here in North Carolina, we lived in South Florida. And that's actually where I received my master's and my doctorate in clinical psychology. And in my graduate school and years of practice, I worked mostly with children, adolescents, and parents. And I left the field in 2018 just due to conviction that the Lord was calling me to pursue more ministry opportunity. And part of that ministry has been with the church and mental health and education and consultation with mental health and how believers can take the gospel-centered aspects of psychology and leave behind some of the other and how we can view mental health from a biblical perspective. Wow. Yeah, we love that. We were actually talking about that before we, you know, went live with you because for some reason the church has dropped the ball mm. in mental health areas and so have parents. And it's because I think partly there's a lot of stigma around it. And so we're hoping to bust some of that down this morning through you. But the reason why we asked you is because of exactly what you just said, because we cannot explore mental health without having it about God. And he made us, he knows how we're wired. And so to merge the two is really an important and 
a must-have step. So we so appreciate your perspective we're and so can't excited, wait to hear. Yeah. This is why we're so excited you're our guest, Sarah. So let's just jump right in. And we're going to start talking, ladies, about middle school. So a lot of you, we know previous podcasts, we talk about kids, babies, toddlers, but let's get a little older here because we need to talk about those teens. <sighs> Please, we're going to talk about your teens, okay? So the ladies are going to help me here more because they have the teens. I still, my cotton candy stage, that's how I call it, my babies. So we're going to talk about middle schoolers. So Sarah, maybe you can help us out. Let's talk about kids in middle school and social media. I know we won't be able to cover everything, but help us out in your professional experience. Social media in middle school. So when we talk about middle school, let's first talk about what that means. And when I say middle school, I'm talking about 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. I'm specifically talking about ages 11, 12, and 13. And if I had a couple words to even describe middle school, I would say awkward and consistently inconsistent. Yes, perfect. It's a period of rapid change, and mm-hmm. you're thinking, why is my child so different outside of the home? you know, than they are at home. So that's the age we're going to talk about. And social media is one of the things that parents so frequently ask about now. So I'm so glad we're talking about this topic. And I hope we can jump a little into it for high school because middle school and high school social media use, really, we're going to look at them a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. You guys, you know, I'm an extrovert and I will talk your ear off at any point. <laughs> you guys just jump in and cut me off. Okay. No, we are sitting at your feet. We need to be okay. educated. We, we have <laughs> We have questions for you. So, (laughs) Well, let's jump into social media in middle school. Again, this is for middle school, not high school. So with parents, I found there's kind of these two extremes. One set of parents thinks social media is all bad. And the other set is, I have no restrictions on social media and my child has access to the phone, the social media accounts with very little monitoring. And I would say neither of those is actually the correct perspective. When it comes to social media, just like many other things in life, we need to think of moderation. And so there's a few things that I want to touch base on with social media use and middle schoolers. And so when I talk about social media, we need a good definition. And what I don't mean is I don't just mean social accounts for connection. So things like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter are part of social media, but so are things like TikTok and YouTube, where there's maybe not a direct connection to somebody, but you can watch videos. Mm -hmm. And so there's five questions I think parents really should be asking themselves. And I'm going to read the five questions and then try my best to answer those as well. So one, are there age restrictions on those social media accounts set forth by the actual accounts? Mm -hmm. So does Facebook and Mm -hmm. Instagram and Twitter, do they have a minimal age for setting up a profile? Number two, why does my child want to use social media? (laughs) Three, what are the benefits? Four, what are the risks? And five, how can we do it safely. So again, these are the five questions that parents should be asking themselves. Can you repeat those for our audience? So our listeners, if they're doing stuff or attending to kids or cooking or driving, can they just take a minute and write it down again? Yes. Let me go through those five again. So one, what are the age restrictions of that particular platform? So what's Facebook? What's their minimal age? Number two, why does my child want to use social media? Three, what are the benefits of social media? Four, what are the risks of social media? And five, how can we use social media safely? 
So those are, again, the five questions that I think parents need to have a conversation with their spouse about Mm -hmm. and even with their child. Yes. I love that you said have a conversation with the spouse because something we encourage and we say it over and over, this has to be, you know, a marriage driven family, you know, and you, we want to make sure you involve your husbands. So ladies, please take note. So I love those questions and my God, we're taking notes here. If you can be here present with us, you see us, we're like typing like crazy (laughs) because we love this. This is why you're our guest. So Tell us how can this transition, because we know there's a lot of things come out from social media, a lot of negatives, but a lot of positive too. But one of the things we notice, and it's getting younger and younger, and we ask you to talk about this, it's eating disorders. We've seen like, especially at a young age, all these middle schoolers are starting to have like eating disorders just because of what they see and what they're watching and what their friends are doing. And the pressure is so strong. How can you help us and help our audience understand what's happening with all this eating disorder? So when we talk about eating disorders, it can relate to social media. There is some social media use in the, in the messages that culture sends, but eating disorders are rather complicated. When I look at most mental health, I look at from a biological, a psychological, a societal, and a spiritual, the biopsychosocial spiritual model of mental health. There are a few mental health issues that are 100% biological, and a few mental health issues, I would say, are 100% spiritual. Most of the mental health issues that I have ever worked with are a combination of Mm. all of those things. Mm. And so when we think about eating disorders, 90% of eating disorders occur or start before the age of 20 and only less than 10% start before the age of 10. So adolescence is a huge time for eating disorders and we can dive into that. I do want to focus a little bit more on some of those social media questions and I can relate that to how it also plays into eating disorders. Mm. Yeah, let's do it. So let me go back real quick. So with social media use, I think my typical recommendation for middle schoolers is that they don't have their own profiles. And here's why. So most platforms have a minimal age of 13. So you're going to have to have the conversation with your child about, mom, why can't I have my own Facebook account? Well, Facebook recommends and Instagram and Twitter recommend that you're 13. So for us to set up your own account, we might have to then be dishonest Mm -hmm. about your age. And so that actually is a good conversation to have of why as a believer, we're going to be honest about your age and setting up social media. And then we look at why kids want social media. And the top three reasons are entertainment, education, and connection. And again, none of those are bad things, especially for the connection and education point. And when we look at social media, we do have to consider the implications and the risk of that. And, and Jeez Murray, what, what you're saying with eating source is there is this comparison game that goes on yep. on social mm-hmm. media. And we see this with adults, too. And that's when you can, if you get into the comparison game, it's funny because we usually never compare ourselves to people that are equal. We either compare <laughs> ourselves to people we think we're better than, which creates a, a feeling of pride or narcissism in us. Or we compare ourselves to people we think which have more, which creates a spirit of discontentment. And so really that comparison game and that's the messages culture sending is that we need to look a certain way. Or we have to have these certain things and that can exacerbate some mental health issues in adolescence. Wow. Okay, we're just in awe. We always usually have what to say, but we're just in awe taking notes here, Sarah. This is amazing. Sarah, if you don't mind sharing, not only from your professional experience, but personal experience, so our audience can understand 
this is why we love you so much, but why did you started like doing psychology and why this is so not only important to you, but you're so passionate about this? I think there's a number of reasons. One is that, you know, my sister actually was the one who was initially interested in psychology. So she bought a lot of psychology books. But when I was 10 years old, my sister actually developed an eating disorder. She was older. She was 13. She had bulimia nervosa. And it was throughout my adolescence that I actually struggled with disordered eating, which became full-blown anorexia. I almost lost my life to anorexia. And by God's grace, not only did God saved me through that. He spiritually mm-hmm. saved me. God physically saved me through anorexia. Mm-hmm. And so with those things, I actually went into graduate school wanting to study and work with eating disorders. And part of my training was working at an eating disorder facility mm-hmm. called Renfrew. It's actually on the HBO movie Thin. Mm-hmm. So that was the facility I worked at. Wow. Um, so really God used my past and my spiritual gift is mercy. And so God uses those things to be able to see people that maybe other people overlook or maybe that are considered outcasts. The people that I look at in scripture and say, Jesus went to them. And I just have a heart for those people through my own experiences and through my spiritual gifting. Mm-hmm. How can you encourage moms that are listening? They're probably going through this journey with any other daughters or sons and they're listening right now and they're like, wow, I wish I can just have a one-on-one with her, but they came right now. (laughs) What is something, at least three things you can tell them and be like, listen, mom, if you're going through this right now, these are three things I can tell you right now that they can help you. When I think of eating disorders, here's where the church gets wrong and this is where parents can get wrong. They look at it as a sin issue. In fact, I was shocked when I read an article, I won't name the organization. It's a large evangelical organization that put out an article on eating disorders. And the person they had right on it was not trained in mental health. And she Mm -hmm. said, if you have a friend walking through an eating disorder, you need to call out your friend on her idolatry. And I thought to myself, that is the absolute worst thing you could do. And here's why mental health, like I said, is biopsychosocial spiritual. When we think of eating disorders, it's really a food addiction. And when I think about my own time caught in an eating disorder, there were so many things that fell into place for that. It wasn't just a spiritual issue. Was there a spiritual component to it? Absolutely. But was there biology? Yes. Was there psychology? Yes. Was there a family and societal piece? Yes. And so when you look at somebody and you call it as a sin issue, you're further chastising them. And what you're saying to them is you're saying, if you were better, if you were less sinful, if you loved Jesus more, you wouldn't struggle. And really what you're selling them is a self-righteous, religious self-help therapy. If you just did better. And that goes completely against what the gospel says. Yeah, And so if you're struggling, if your child or your teenager is struggling with an eating disorder, one is you do speak truth and love after you have a trusting relationship. Two is you need to look at yourself as a parent and say, if I'm expecting my child to make changes, I too probably need to make some. How am I part of this problem? Mm-hmm. And three, you need to get professional help. There's some really good therapies out there for children suffering from an eating disorder, but the earlier you catch it, the more likely it is that the person will recover. And what we know about anorexia is aside from opiate use, anorexia is the deadliest mental health condition out there. In fact, there's some research that says upward of 25% of people that struggle with anorexia will eventually die. And when you come to therapy, even refeeding somebody with anorexia can be deadly. 
And so you have to have the right professional people. And not even every psychologist is trained in treating eating disorders. And so we have to be careful who we go to. And when you think of eating disorders, you think of comorbidity. And what I mean by that is what are other co-occurring or other mental health issues that tend to go along with that? And what we know for anorexia and bulimia is anxiety is one of those. You also see drug addiction and a huge history of trauma. And that's often what I saw with these women that I worked with. I worked at the facility. It was ages 14 and up. So many of these women had sexual trauma in their past. Wow. And Sarah, you just mentioned anxiety. And we were talking previously about this, just like (laughs) regular talk as friends. We were talking like how nowadays our society, social media, everything, seems like everything and everyone is talking about anxiety, not only for themselves, for their kids at a really young age. And we were just discussing between us ladies, we were like, how is this becoming like a new trend, which is sad, but everyone is saying like, my kid has an anxiety attack or I have a lot of anxiety and in all this anxiety, anxiety. What is your professional opinion about it? I mean, it's creating, you know, a little trend. Is it more cultural? But do you think it's actually because of everything that's happening in social media, in the age? What is it the source of this anxiety? So anxiety and depression and suicide actually are all on the rise in 2020. Suicide's actually been on the rise in the past decade, but anxiety and depression during COVID. And I think that there's a lot of reasons that contribute to that. One is we know anxiety typically runs in families and that's due to modeling by the parent. So when a young child is viewing an anxious parent, they're getting the message that I too should be anxious about this. So one of the Mm -hmm. best things we can do for our kids is to work on our own anxiety. Anxiety can also come, spiritually can come from a lack of trust in the Lord. But if you're talking about a child who's either a non-believer or a brand new believer, I'm not going to think that their trust in the Lord is the same as somebody who's been walking with the Lord for 50 years. But we also think when anxiety comes from when we look at a situation and we think to ourselves, we overestimate the probability that something bad will happen and we underestimate our ability to deal with it. And that's where, you know, taking our thoughts captive, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I'm not, which I like, but I don't think it's rooted in the gospel, actually has some great components to it. It takes the gospel piece of challenging negative thinking or, or taking our thoughts captive and it translates it into challenging negative thinking and holding our thoughts accountable. So our thoughts happen, and when we think a certain way, we then feel a certain way, and then we behave a certain way, and usually those behaviors reinforce our thinking. So if I think to myself, this dog is going to bite me, if the dog's asleep, it's a neutral stimulus, but I think the dog's going to bite me, well, I'm going to feel anxious about the dog, and then I'm not going to interact with the dog, and that will reinforce the fact that, hey, the dog probably would have bitten me had I gone near it. So it's looking at some situations that are neutral and anticipating the worst. But then there's also times in our life where stress occurs and we see where stress comes from in Genesis 3. You see stress as a result of the fall. Prior to the fall, you didn't have emotional stress. If you look back in in, in Genesis 3, we see the first signs of stress, painful labor, which you ladies know is a special kind of stress. (laughs) We won't talk about that part of stress. Working and plowing a field with thorns. And there's a few things. One, sometimes we stress because of our own sin. Two, sometimes we stress because of the sin of others. And three, sometimes we have stress or anxiety due to circumstances, again, that are a result of the fall. Like 
disease and death. Those are a result of the fall, but not something that we created in our own sin. So we can't look at anxiety and simply say it's only a lack of trust in the Lord, because again, it's biopsychosocial spiritual. Wow. Wow. Well, Sarah, I'm sitting here and I'm just like, just my jaws <laughs> on the floor, just trying to take it all in. As a parent of a middle schooler, one thing that I would like to be helpful with my middle schooler is how, as a parent and as a believer, how can I help my middle schooler through anxiety? If there's a stressful situation, what are some tools that I need to have in my toolbox that I can use to help talk through or just share with my middle schooler when they are faced with some of these different situations that may cause anxiety? So I think when we talk to our middle schooler, so middle school is a strange time cognitively. We're moving from this concrete thinking of, well, it didn't happen then, so it probably won't happen again, to a little bit more abstract thinking or thinking outside of yourself and being able to hypothesize things. Mm-hmm. And so we have to take into consideration, okay, if you're 11 years old versus you're 13, there's some cognitive development that happens in there. And so we just need to be cognizant of that. So when we talk to our children, first, if you do have a child who's struggling with anxiety, enough to meet an anxiety disorder, that's when we need to get a therapist or biblical counselor, somebody that loves the Lord and walks with the Lord, but has some more specialized techniques. I also believe when we're talking with our kids, we need to do a lot less talking, which, you know, for an extrovert like me might be a little hard. Um, (laughs) And a lot more listening, allowing for silence to happen and not solving all of your child's problems. I think we've created Mm -hmm. a culture in our kids where, one, we step in and solve their problems instead of allowing them. And we've created a culture in our kids that they are special and unique and wonderful and amazing and follow your heart. That's the culture's messages. And I think when things don't go their way, they struggle a little more with anxiety. So as a parent, we need to be prayerful. We need to encourage them to challenge some of their thinking. So Mm -hmm. if that were to happen, then what? Where would we go from there? You know, has this ever happened to you before? What's the likelihood that would happen? And then if this happens, what could we do? And so you're walking your child through coping skills. And when I say coping skills, that's the secular term for it. But Mm -hmm. I actually believe that the Lord has created us to sleep exercise, voice our concerns Mm. and our opinions. He's caused us to eat. He wants us to eat healthy. Those are all natural, reduced stress or anxiety things. They're what we call coping skills, but actually they're what God says is good for us. And so we need to make sure we're putting those into play. Deep breathing, meditation on the word. Mm -hmm. All of those, again, would be biblical concepts that help reduce anxiety. Okay. So I've gone through having a middle school girl and now I'm kind of in the whole boy phase. One thing that I don't think that I was prepared for as a mom is, you know, when puberty is occurring with a girl, there are so many physical changes that we can see and we observe. And I think society has said, you know, girls change and there's this big aha thing going on with their bodies and their minds during puberty. But what are some of the things I just want to focus on the boys for a bit? What are some of the things we may not always physically be able to see the changes that they're going through when they're entering middle school and puberty? What are some of the things that we need to be looking for? And also, you know, boys seem to be a lot less communicative during that time. How, again, can we really hone in on bridging the gap with them during that time of early pubescence development? 
And, you know, when we look at what research says, there's actually a wide range of puberty for both boys and girls. I mean, when we talk about puberty, you can talk about the start of it. And the start of it, you don't even see. It's actually in the bones. And so when we think about puberty for girls, we're saying anywhere from 8 to 13. And for boys, it's anywhere from 9 to, like, 15. And so there's a huge range there. But girls do tend to develop a year or two earlier than boys. And so most boys are in puberty around age 12 is kind of when we start seeing more of the signs. And some of the earlier signs is actually their testicles will drop, they get a little bit of enlargement in their penis, and they have some pubic hair growth. Those are some of the actually earlier signs. And later you get armpit hair, facial hair, smells, and, and that's going to come a little and followed by the growth spurt. So with boys specifically, though, one of the things I think that moms of boys can do, and I think this is really important for boys, is boys do, it's not that the boys are not relational or not empathetic or not feelings driven. I think boys and men get kind of a bad rep for that. And so our boys have empathy. They have feelings. It's just they're probably not as expressive verbally as a girl might be. And so where it comes for especially a mom or dad of boys, and specifically for moms since we're a different gender, is to really get in and know your boy through activities. Mm -hmm. So what speaks to my son that I love him is I go in the backyard and I throw football with him. That's what he likes. But when I'm doing that, I'm building a relationship so that then he will be more likely to talk to me. And again, those moments of silence of with your child are, are important and to use open-ended questions. So, you know, you're getting a note from your teacher saying, hey, your kid's awesome. He talks so much at school. And you're thinking, well, I asked him how his day is and I get fine. <laughs> you're thinking, what is going on that my child doesn't want to talk to me? And really, it's not that they don't want to. It's they actually feel comfortable enough to say fine and to be a little bit more themselves. So those open-ended questions of, tell me the best thing about your day. Tell me the worst thing about your day. What's going right with friends at school? What's mm-hmm. your favorite thing about your teacher versus, was your day good? Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> allowing for silence. Middle schoolers may not always be in the mood to talk when you ask the question, but when you're playing and interacting with them and you are asking the questions, what it says to them is, my parent loves me. And so when they're ready to talk, they will, they'll talk to you if you have that trust there. That so, so Sarah, bad. what are some indicators like when you have teens or the, you know, they're going through puberty and then you can tell our parents that are listening, you're like, hey, these are indicators that your kid is going through, your boy or girl is going through puberty. And please help them out with this. It can be with any sort of topic. But what are some indicators that you can be like, listen, if like you just said, if they are quiet, it's not because they don't want to talk to you It's because they're going through puberty, or if they're giving you this attitude, like what are some things that you can help us out indicator that you can be like, hey, that's a red flag. So please don't be upset. This is what's happening. <laughs> Yeah. Do you mean what are some indicators of puberty or what are some red flags for mental health issues? Both. <laughs> Great. <yeah. laughs> okay. Okay. We'll just, we'll just dive in. Sorry. We'll yes. just dive in yes. there. So when I said that middle school is awkward and consistently inconsistent, what I mean by that is there is just a lot of change. This is a physically, socially, family-wise, Cognitively, it is a dramatic period of change. Mm. Um, And you'll see that change slow down some in later adolescence. So 
really what we're going to see here is rapid change. Your middle schooler is going to start being a little bit more self-conscious. And there's going to be likely, especially as they get more to the age of 13, there's going to be some disconnect in behavior outside of the home versus inside. So again, I go back to when teachers and other parents are going, man, your child is so polite. They're so well-behaved. And you're thinking, they just gave me an eye roll right before they left for your house. What is going on? That's actually a good sign, believe it or not. Our behavior at home often looks different than our behavior outside of the home. I start getting concerned more when the behavior is being negative consistently across settings and people. That is more of a red flag that something's going on. So when your child is getting in trouble at school as well as at home, that's more concerning than they're performing really well at school, but have a lousy attitude at home. Now, even though sometimes having that lousy attitude or eye rolling is part of that developmental stage, that doesn't mean as believers, we just ignore it and let it go. (laughs) As a believer, we want to cultivate an attitude of contentment in our children. And so one of the ways to do that in the home is really discipleship. It's not punishment. It's discipleship. So your child rolls their eyes. It's not go to your bed. You just rolled your eyes at me. That's going to create a divide. That's not helpful. And all you, if you've paired a negative stimulus with a negative punishment, what we need to do is, hey, mom said this, let's try your response again. Why do you think I want you to try your response again? And maybe sit and pray with them. So again, consistently inconsistent. And then physically speaking, you do have puberty going on. But this is also a time where children might be a little bit more clumsy. They're physically growing. They might actually even complain of some growth pains. You know, as a middle schooler, they don't really feel like a kid, but they don't feel like an adult. So they often feel awkward themselves as well. And then socially, it's a tough time. Middle school is actually more so than high school. It is the clickiest time. Even within your own groups, middle schoolers tend to be less open to diversity than later in high school, even within their own cliques. So this is something to keep in mind when you're talking to your son or your daughter in middle school, that even if they have friends, they might during the day feel anxious or they might feel out of place because even their own friends may not be accepting of them. And it's also a time where they become more self-absorbed. The focus starts becoming more on on themselves. And we see this throughout adolescence. It's, it, it's an egocentricism. It's a return to focus on yourself. It's much what we see in uh, toddlers, but we're going to see that again in adolescence. And then the other thing to be aware of is and this is not abnormal, it's pretty normal, is when you ask a middle schooler to describe themselves, they're going to describe maybe more of their traits. I'm popular, I'm an athlete. And (laughs) as they get older, they're going to be able to take that to a deeper level. Oh my gosh, I love it. Sarah, we can stay here talking forever. (laughs) I mean, I'm like filling out like a whole notebook of notes. But before we close, Kristen, can you share with us, because Kristen here, you have had like a lot of teens together in your home at the same time. And like I'm saying multiple, more than one. For a lot of us moms, maybe it's like one teen, two teens, but you have a lot of kids. So can you tell our ladies, like what is something you can advise our moms who are listening? How to keep that healthy relationship between siblings when all this puberty and emotional and roller coaster is happening? Like what are some things that you can share and be like, hey, listen, mom, you know, I've been there, done that. But if you could create this atmosphere, you know, like something like that, what is... And advice. 
Yeah. And Sarah, I'll draw you into that question because these ladies hear from me a lot and I'd like to hear your perspective on it. I, I do know, G. Smith, that in our home, it was really important for us that we create, and I think we've talked about this before, but just a sense of team, a sense of belonging, like what does it look like to be a Scroggins? And as much as we could, we've tried to center that around our shared relationship with the Lord and our church and our common ground that we have, like we are together, we have each other's back and we may tease each other some in the home, but nobody else does that. You know, we take care of each other and we try to help teach our kids to, you know, cover over each other's weaknesses and really cheer each other on. And that takes a lot of time and effort and work, but it's worth it. And to watch the older ones now do that on their own is really a joy to me as a mom. But Sarah, I would like to hear what you think. What are some ways that you would say that these moms that are listening and the three of us that are listening, what can we do to help facilitate good sibling relationships between these teens? Kristen, everything that you've said, I just agree with. In fact, we use that same metaphor with our kids. Is It's a team. We even have a family chant. It's called Love God, Love Others. Mm-hmm. And we put our hands in the middle. <laughs> But really, exactly what you said is it is a team and you have to find commonality. Will you get rid of sibling rivalry altogether? No. Mm -hmm. Is all sibling rivalry bad? No. In fact, you can use it to focus on healthy problem solving and conflict resolution, which is all biblical. You're not always going to agree with your brother or sister, but you can find commonality and solve the problem without screaming, shoving, pushing, whatever it might be, name calling. And so I think... Those moments are great moments when those shoving or screaming or name calling, whatever comes up or jealousy is a great time to not pull out or punish, but to push in. Mm -hmm. And those are the conversations where discipleship and change can really happen and getting your child to focus on the heart issue behind it, not just the behavior. It's not a, you called your brother a meanie, go to your bed. It's, Mm -hmm. hey, tell me, what were you thinking in that situation? What were you feeling? What would you hope would happen? How can we change that? Because you're getting your child to look at their heart. What part of the problem were you part of the problem? What does the Lord call us to have? So, you know, some of the things I think that create a team effort, we use a, in our house, we have three boys. So we use the football analogy. Hey, if you're the quarterback and you've called a play, but your team members are not doing what you said to do, does the play work? It's no. So when one team member is not on the team or one team member is struggling, the whole team suffers. So if you and your brother are fighting, it impacts you, it impacts your brother, it impacts mom, it impacts dad, it impacts even the child that's not involved because it's a team. And if we're not working together, we're really not working. And one of the other things I would really suggest to parents, and I think this is a good one, because kids tend to be more self-absorbed, how can you get them to serve their siblings? Mm-hmm. And especially through prayer, praying specifically for the sibling they are struggling that's with. Good. Yeah, I think that's really important because even in my own life, I've had some people that I'm just going to be real honest with you, get on my nerves. <laughs> and I'm sure I am on the list of others that get on their nerves. But I have noticed that when I start to pray for them, truly pray, not pray that the Lord will change them so they won't get on my nerves, but pray for them out of love. My heart starts to change and I begin to love that person. And so, Sarah, that's such a great 
it sounds so lofty and spiritual, but it's such a great reminder of, hey, we've got to get our kids to cheer for one another, to love each other, to pray for them. And it takes time from mom to do that. But listen, we could talk on and on about this. And the good thing is we have you back again for part two. So we can continue this conversation. But Sarah, thank you for being with us with as we talk about the middle schoolers that we know and love, and you've given us such great things to think about and do. So ladies, we're going to wrap up part one of adolescent mental health, and we'll sign off and then we'll be back for part two and talking about high schoolers. So on the count of three, ladies, let's do it. Sarah, are you ready? One, two, two, three. three. Bye. Bye. Bye.